This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. For this week's Toil and Trouble slot, I'm talking to Tomkins Wake partner Daniel Erickson about an interesting case at Fonterra, where an employee fought the interpretation of a collective bargaining agreement and won. Daniel, thank you very much for coming in. Now, um, this this case doesn't look on the face of it mm-hmm. too exciting, but it's actually quite interesting. Tell us about it. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think firstly it's it's factually interesting to, to an extent, you know, based on the 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 implications arising from it, particularly for this individual who was a long-serving employee of Fonterra. Uh, I think more interestingly, it's it's part of a trend that we're seeing in employment law, which is emphasising that the employment relationship is different to a commercial relationship. And so therefore, if you are looking at interpreting these agreements, there's different considerations that come into play. Right. So let's just go top line what this case is about. Yeah, Mr Legros was a long-serving employee at Fonterra, or still is a long-serving employee at Fonterra. Uh, Fonterra had offered uh, a certain group of employees a a long-service benefit that, you know, if they'd been there 15 years, say, they'd get uh, some cash or some extra leave and and things like that. because of his role, uh, Mr Legro wasn't actually on the collective agreement for a period of time. He he was in a more senior role and mm. covered by an individual agreement, but that role was made redundant and he accepted, uh, a, 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 I guess, a, a less senior role and in doing so he fell back on the collective. He, he reached his 15 years of service, or in fact passed it, um, and so thought he was entitled to this long service benefit. Fonterra said, no, you're not, because when you ticked over your 15 years, you were actually on an individual agreement, and it only applies to people on this collective. Um, which was, you know, you can understand from Mr Legros' point of view how he wasn't happy with that. You know, he said, well, look, I've done the 15 years, I should get this benefit. Was there anything in the collective agreement that specifically grandfathered people on that particular a long service leave. Yeah, so from from my reading of the judgment, there was you know it 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 wasn't necessarily a benefit that's going to apply to everyone who joins subsequently and then completes their fifteen years of service. It looks like it was just you know when the a particular deal was done or a particular benefit was offered, a handful of people who were there at the time were identified as having this benefit. Just to confuse things more, wasn't it also true that people on individual contracts actually had better long service leave provision? Yeah, it's not it's not a hundred percent clear from the the, the the judgment whether that or not that is the case. But I mean, it's not unusual to have uh, differing terms and conditions of employment as between the individuals and the collectives, and you know as. You asked before about the grandfathering to also have a certain you know named group of individuals who are there at a specific point in time having a, a benefit that they retain. So Fonterra here argued that it made business sense for them to do what they were doing. Can you just explain that? Yeah, well, that was one of their arguments was that you know that if Mr. Legros was entitled to this benefit, it would open up the floodgates and it would there would be more and people that would be arguing they were entitled to it. 
And secondly, that it just doesn't make business sense from the point of view of, well, why would we pay this to people when we don't have to? Mm. Because we don't think they're entitled to have it because he wasn't there as at the 15 years. Um, and that's where I guess the point about the, the specific nature of employment agreements came into play. You know, one of the things the judge emphasised was that employment relationships are different to, a, to an arm's length commercial agreement where you're buying and selling goods or services. You know, in an employment relationship, there is that relational aspect. And I mean, this isn't the first judgment where we've seen that. You know, there was a decision of the Supreme Court in the FMV case where they made the same observation. And it's interesting that as part of that, they actually noticed the change from the Employment Contracts Act, which we had you know, in the 90s, to the Employment Relations Act, which we have now. And so it's, you know, they, that's one of the factors they latch on to, is that the change in the name in itself is indicative of a different approach. So yes, you know, when, when you're interpreting an employment agreement, you know, some of the, the, the traditional or the broader tests that are used in commercial agreements are relevant, but there's also that relational aspect that come, and it came into play in this case when they're noting that you know, the, the, ben, the purpose of the long service benefit was expressly to recognise long service. Right. So the judge said the whole point of this is to recognise long yeah. service, so you need to pay it. That's right. That was, that was one of her arguments. And she, I mean, she also noted that the, the clause didn't expressly exclude his entitlement. It didn't expressly include it. So it was silent really on what would happen in, in the case of someone who subsequently joined the collective, such as Mr Legros. Um, but you know, that, because it wasn't specifically clear, then you look at, well, what's the purpose of this, which was to recognise long service, alongside that broader relational aspect. And the judge said that favoured the interpretation that he's entitled to it. That's really interesting. I mean, because unions tend to try and ring-fence the... Um, the benefits of being mm. in a in a uh, collective agreement, mm. and it, this judgment does suggest that people can then kind of subsequently mm. get themselves in, <laughs> included in such an agreement. Yeah, well, the, well, the the again, the employment relation it's quite clear that you know if someone joins a collective agreement, you know, while it's in force, you join a union at any particular point in time, you know, you become covered by that collective, and even if that means you know there's an element of retrospectivity, that you are picking up benefits you you may not have had previously, then yeah. that, you know, again, that's kind of the, the legislation allows for that because you can join a collective, uh, join a union and become covered by it at any point in time. It didn't seem like a lot of money or anything, so it was a point of principle perhaps for Frontera. Yeah, I, I, I guess yeah. it was. And, and I mean, Mr Legros was backed by the union in this case, mm. so you know, the union lawyers were representing him and so forth. So, you know, potentially there are others affected by this interpretation. And, and, and often these cases are, are taken not so much because of the individual it directly impacts, but just the broader interpretive principles. And yeah. so there may have been an element of that as well from the union. But you're right. I mean, on the face of it, it doesn't look like the benefit to uh, Mr Legros was was going to be significant. Mm. And just finally, what are the lessons employers can take out of this case, if any? Well, I, I think that it's just bearing in mind that you know that 
the, a strictly contractual approach is, is, is not necessarily going to do you any favours. You know, you need to look at the employment relationship more broadly, bearing in mind the broader concepts in the Employment Relations Act, you know, good faith, um, fairness and reasonableness and all those sorts of things. And I, I think, too, this is potentially just a drafting lesson as well. You know, if, if they wanted to expressly exclude people, then you can provide for that in the, in, in the wording. You know, as, mm. if you make it clear, then, then there isn't going to be an issue. So if you are wanting to, uh, you know, disentitle certain people to a benefit for whatever reason, then just make sure it's clearly stated. That's great. Thanks so much. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. The Institute of Directors with ASB Bank have just released the latest pulse of how company boards are feeling. With us is ASB Chief Economist Nick Tuffley. So, Nick, you're looking at it from an economic lens. What surprises were in this survey from your perspective? What we're seeing is a little bit of a juxtaposition in terms of views on how the general economy will go and organisations' own prospects. So we've seen a little bit more optimism, or should I say less pessimism, about where the general economy is going. But when directors are looking at their own organisations, they are on balance far more positive about their own organisations than they are about the general economy, but they were a little bit less positive overall than what we saw last year. So there's been a bit bit of a, I suppose you could say, a closing of that gap with uh, a little bit of a little bit more hesitancy about the how well their own organisations will do, but they're less pessimistic about the the broader prospects for New Zealand. So does that say they've got things under control internally? What I would say is that there's a little bit less concern about the the broader economic environment. It's still obviously there, but when you compare to where we were last year, they're a little bit more comfortable. And I do think we have seen the economy come through the worst when you reflect on late last year. Around the time we were doing the survey, the economy was tipping into a little bit of a contraction at the time, whereas we're now back into an environment of, of weak growth. So... That aspect of it starting to come right. And I think that when directors are looking around the, their own organisations, obviously still think that they've got you know, a lot more opportunity to control uh, and mitigate any risks and also um, take advantage of the opportunity. So we tend to see that general view that uh, directors are more optimistic about their own organisations' prospects compared to the overall economy, because there is that element of control and understanding. What are their expectations about inflation? Do they expect inflation to fall? Well, we have seen in this survey, we we introduced uh, essentially cost of living as one of the things that directors could pick in terms of concerns about national economic performance uh, and their own organisation. And actually, number one concern for the economy as a whole, the biggest economic impediment, was actually cost of living. So very strongly coming coming in there and displacing the usual one, which is sort of challenges around around labour. So look, I would say cost pressure is still very... Very much front of mind of directors when they're looking at uh, looking at things from a national economic point of view. It was number two concern when they were starting to look at their own uh, organisations' challenges, but obviously it's still very much front of mind. Did these results depend on how big the company board or company was? 
Well, you do get a bit of a range. So it's going through both large private, uh, you've got private companies of all types, publicly listed companies. You're going through sort of uh, state-owned organisations, government departments, Māori organisations. There's a bit of a split. What we've tended to see is that it's the, the sort of private companies and all the listed companies have been a little bit more pessimistic about the general economic outlook. The public sector, um, on balance, net in optimism territory and Māori organisations as well. And when we're looking at organisations at an individual level, Māori organisations are again very optimistic about their own prospects. So there are some definitely some contrasts in, in the, the surveys and it will depend on things like the, the range of markets they are facing, any particular industry concerns they have. So government sector itself may be a little bit less concerned about the, the wider economic prospects or even just you know international demand as an example compared to say companies that are more focused on trading internationally. There is the the outlook for the economy as well. Do they expect interest rates to stay at the same level? Well, with this survey, we're not going uh, into that sort of detail. It's more around that broader broader outlook uh, for what their expectations are. And obviously those are that things will be getting a, a little bit better. But I think where we've seen sentiment generally sitting is you know, directors recognise that it's a fairly hard grind for the economy at this point, even if they think that their own business will general, or organisation will generally outperform the wider economy. Where do you see this heading? Are you going to use the same methodology moving forward or are there things you could change when you ask company directors as the economy could potentially improve? We tend to stick with the same two questions initially in the survey, which is basically how do you see the overall economy going, your own organisation going. On that front, I think when we're rolling forward in a year's time, I think we'll be through a lot of the worst of the impacts of, say, inflation, the economy looking like it's on a stronger footing, global economy in a, in a better place as well. So it's likely that we'll see you know, some improvements on, on the broader economic outlook and organisations' own outlook. When we get down into the views on what do you see as a broader economic impediment or an impediment to your organisation, we do change those very slightly depending on whether there is some sort of key matters coming along. Uh, so we did introduce um, a, an option to pick you know, political, you know, you know, election uncertainty, which obviously will mm. have well and truly faded. Uh, things like cost of living, uh, we may well keep keep that in just to get a bit of a gauge to see how that that shifts. Um, so it, it's around some of those things that have been very topical. For instance, supply chain challenges were something we, we introduced in, in previous surveys. This time around we've kept it, but pleasingly it's really sort of faded as a, as a key concern for directors. So you can see that, that evolution of how directors' concerns shift over time. Mm. Any conversation about international forces such as the conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza? Well, this survey uh, was sort of taken um, in a, generally prior to that conflict really kicking off. We've still obviously had the war in Ukraine going for this has been the second survey in a sense since uh, that, that started. You certainly have a degree of concern about the, the wider global world, but most of the concerns or the predominant concerns st still are quite domestic. So it's that inflation, uh, 
challenges around labour costs uh, as, as an example, uh, which is a perennial one which features strongly in, on directors' lists of concerns. There would be some optimism about a bigger pool of labour given the open border. We've certainly seen, uh, first of all, whilst labour cap- you know, capacity, capability uh, is still high, um, it, it certainly wasn't in, in generally in, in first place uh, and it has eased back when uh, directors are looking at their, their own business. So that's very pleasing. We also saw um, you know, a, a question over immigration policy, which last year featured very strongly as a concern. That's faded right back. So directors s- certainly recognising that that labour market um, is likely to get easier over time, that immigration policy has gone from potentially being a bit of a handbrake on being able to find uh, key skills to to helping it out. And and we've had such an explosion of people coming in on work visas. So that sort of really sort of bears testimony to that shift in the immigration uh, stance as well. Are there any pinch points or new headwinds emerging? Well... I think for, from a director's point of view, the, the one that's sort of clearly been highlighted, it is that, that whole cost of living. So both from their organisational point of view um, and from a broader economic point of view, they're, they're, they're up there in the number one and number two uh, places you know, f- for those uh, particular questions. So obviously a, a pretty key concern at this point of time. Obviously we'd expect that that will start to ease as a as an issue as we see headline inflation continue to to fall. Are company boards, in your opinion, holding up reasonably well compared to what you may have thought a year ago? I think we've we've seen um, in the in the survey I think you know quite a healthy degree in this survey, even though it's down last year, just that view that regardless of the fact that there's some big economic uh, challenges and concern there, now, the, I think it's really important that directors have kept a view that their own organisations will find a way to sail through and and be in better shape than what they were. So optimism on, on that front, um, and you'd say to a degree warranted because the economy you know, looks like it's it's been pretty resilient when you think of all the challenges that have been thrown at it. Nick Tuffley, thanks for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. John Berry is the co-founder and CEO of Pathfinder Asset Management, the country's first certified B Corp fund manager with some $600 million under management. The business has been gonged and Berry has won Sustainability Superstar in this year's Sustainable Business Awards. I spoke to him prior to the award ceremony. It's award season and um, you've been a finalist in a number of awards and won some awards. What's it, what is the significance to you of being such a big feature of these awards? Look, we, we don't do our work for winning awards. It's obviously nice, um, it's really nice for the team to have the recognition and for our members to, to see us winning the awards and, and um, you know, it feels good, it, it validates um, the work we're doing, it helps us feel like we're on the right track, but it's not the reason we do the work we're doing. No. <laughs> um, you were one of the first movers, if not the first mover, in ethical investing in New Zealand. How has the marketplace evolved over time? Huge change, huge change. So we, we launched our first um, sustainable investment fund back in 2010, which is a global water fund, and really back then... Um, there wasn't really a place in the market for it and, and it was seen as 
different and niche and a bit out there. Um, and it took a few years for the for the market to warm to warm into it, but combination of good returns and a really interesting. I mean, the water fund water is interesting to talk about and, and invest and invest around the water theme. Um, and then we saw in the you know 2016 when people found in their KiwiSaver they had controversial weapons that really started waking people up to yes, how I invest my money, how I invest my money really matters. Mm. Do you think though the sector has captured as many people as it? Should should have. Well, part, part of it is about awareness and and helping New Zealanders understand. You know, if we're talking the KiwiSaver space, helping New Zealanders understand what's in their KiwiSaver and how they're invested. Um, you know, we we can do a better job as an industry around that. Mm. You made some comments that suggested a disillusionment with BlackRock recently. What's happened with BlackRock? So with BlackRock, um, I was a big fan of, of Larry Fink back in 2017 when he did his annual letter to um, CEOs of all the companies BlackRock was invested in, yes. talked about um, you know the, the purpose of companies is beyond just short-term profits and is also about serving a social purpose and, and really led in that space and really got the conversation going but has quietened down a lot um, around, you know, Around the both the way they invest in that space and the um, the way he, he talks about it publicly, and recently appoint, the appointment of um, the CEO of Saudi Aramco to um, BlackRock's board um, just seemed to step too far for us. When um, um, you know they they had been talking about putting effort into decarbonising the portfolio, that seemed a bit out of step. Why do you think he has stepped back in the way he has? I think ESG globally, certainly outside of New Zealand, um, in North America in particular, ESG has become heavily politicised and that will have had an impact um, on both the way he invests and the way he talks about it. And, you know, Florida and Texas and, and a number of parts of the US, there's this massive backlash towards ESG investing. Does it have any impact on the fact that BlackRock has this fund with the New Zealand government for our own 100% renewable energy aspirations? No, look, I, I don't think that necessarily has any impact. You know, bearing in mind that fund doesn't exist at the moment, right. it's um, it, it's an idea on providing capital for decarbonising New Zealand. But I think they will build that fund for what New Zealanders want, what New Zealand investors want. Well, I hope they build it for news, what New Zealand investors want. Yeah, but having BlackRock involved is it problematic? Is problematic from a New Zealand perspective, mm. or from? Um, just because we don't invest in them doesn't mean it's it, you know that, that it's not appropriate for them to set up a, um, a fund focused on climate change for investing in New Zealand. Mm. Um, ESG in general in New Zealand it hasn't become as polarised as it has uh, offshore. You say? Yeah, that's right. It's ESG in New Zealand is really seen as a data set to help fund managers make better decisions. Um, so. What are the environmental, social, and governance metrics of a company? It is just data, though, and so it sits alongside financial data and helping analyse companies and work out what investments could be more resilient in down markets or perform better in up markets. Do you think there are still people who disbelieve the idea that ESG um, initiatives are a good thing? Do you have it? Do you ever encounter that kind of backlash yourself? Yeah, there's still um, there is still thinking that. You know Milton Friedman's view of the world that the duty of companies is just to make short-term profits and pay the highest dividends possible to shareholders. Um, you know there are people who, who think that's still totally appropriate. That short-termism um, 
is is the way to go. But from a company's perspective, a company needs to have a long-term lens if it's going to protect its brand, if it's going to attract and retain customers, and if it's going to be um, relevant in a decade or more. It has to think longer term than just the next quarter or the next year. Just finally, John, where are you taking Pathfinder? Where, how would you like to see it evolve in the next five years or so? Over the next five years, uh, um, I'd like to see the business grow. I'd like to see more people know us. So it's, it's about raising awareness and um, growing the business and strengthening um, the way we invest, uh, the purpose, and, and bring more people on board. Thank you very much for talking to MBR. Thank you, Dita. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> One of the things that uh, happened while I was at PwC was we obviously hired a bunch of people um, and not all of them worked out as we had expected based on their resume um, and the interview process that we undertook. So one of the things that we did in the last few years I was there was we were actually out looking for some technical skills tests to test our candidates on. Um, And so we contacted uh, a guy who lives locally, Steve Evans, who um, has a background in testing and assessment, and he went, scoured the world looking for some um, accounting skills tests for us and presented us with various options, and they were all just rubbish. Old, they were very Americanized. There was virtually, there was, there was nothing in New Zealand, nothing in Australia, nothing in the UK. There were some in the US, but you know, they were generally very old terminology um, and clearly not, not being used in a, in a hiring scenario. Um, and there was no science really behind them. So I guess that was the genesis of an idea to try and create something that firms could use on the basis that, well, here, here was something that we wanted and couldn't find. there was no thought that this was ever going to be a a significant business because, you know, I had hiking and running and um, mountaineering and stuff like that to do. Uh, So so that was, I guess, was the sorts of things that I had anticipated doing. And this was only ever going to be, uh, uh, you know, a little part-time gig. And and to be fair, it carried on as a part-time gig for a while. We developed a series of skills tests for the New Zealand market for both public practice accounting and for corporate sector. Uh, and, and we road tested those. So, you know, one of, the, one of the learnings, I guess, that everybody learns is do your market research. Well, we didn't do any market research because we just had a good idea. Um, and we went out and, and, and uh, gave it a go. Um, as you could say that's a good Kiwi attitude. It's probably not really because we probably wasted an awful lot of time if, that we could have saved by having done our market research. But anyway, we, we just went out there with our product and, you know, s- slow success. Um, here's something that you've never seen before. People in accounting generally, well, don't use skills tests. There clearly weren't any. Um, so unless they had something they developed in-house, which some people have done. Uh, but if they were going to the market for looking for something, there was never anything. So it was always a create the market and then and then fill it and that's a you know I guess it's a very very slow process Um, much slower than creating a product that's better than you know an existing product and and then just going out in the market and and effectively piggybacking off the market that they're already created. 
it would be fantastic if somebody like KPMG developed a product like ours because they do all their marketing for us, you know, and they and they um, persuade the market that sk skills testing and, and specific testing for um, public accounting was a thing to to um, to go for. Um, so you know, from that point of view, I don't think we're we're particularly bothered about that. The market's massive. Um, I think our point of difference is that we're totally focused on the public accounting firm market. So, you know, the, there are big testing providers, particularly in the US, um, people like Test Gorilla. They have a whole series of accounting tests and they're not that bad, but, um, but this is not their focus. They've got hundreds and hundreds of tests. And so they're not talking to accounting firms and trying to persuade them to use their particular accounting skills tests. They're much more broad reach um, in looking at, at, at essentially hiring departments, if you like. Uh, yeah, so whereas we're just n narrowing you know, straight into um, to the accounting firm market. Dame Kerry Prendergast has worked for over two decades in local government and other organisations with a role in tourism, including seven years as Chair of Tourism New Zealand and now as Independent Chair of Tourism Industry Aotearoa, or TIA. She joins me today to talk about a soon-to-be-revealed plan to better fund the sector and its desperate infrastructure needs. Dame Kerry, thanks for joining us. How would you describe the fight for tourism funding over time? There has always been issues around funding and local government not having enough funding mechanisms to support infrastructure deficits around the country. Uh, so, I mean, if you go back as far as TIA documents from 2006, they're talking about some sort of a bed tax. So the way local government is funding is basically you have to get it from ratepayers and ratepayers in the main will argue that a lot of, not all of, but some of the infrastructure is for visitors so why, doesn't, why don't visitors pay for the infrastructure deficits? And you know, the classic example is a tiny little community in the far north that probably has enough water and sewerage infrastructure to support 3,000 people nine months of the year but either the New Zealand domestic visitor descends on it or international visitors and suddenly they don't have enough water, they don't have the correct ways of disposing sewage and they don't have a ratepayer base to pay for that. Mm. So that's a classic example. Tourists pay GST that isn't refunded to them and they also pay a $35 levy at the border, don't they? Well, first of all, the international visitor levy was set at 35. Some portion of that actually goes to, uh, doesn't all go to tourism. It goes to, I think, customs uh, and bio, um, um, I forget the name, but about $10 goes in a different direction. So the rest goes and it gets split between uh, dock and tourism New Zealand. It goes into a fund uh, and there are criteria to which you have to apply to get that funding. So it's not an easy way of distribution. Uh, GST, look, that is the classic way of getting income from visitors. The reality is forever it has gone to the consolidated fund and it funds hospitals and schools and justice and everything else, it would be really hard for the government to give up some of that GST. 
I think the industry is pretty well coalesced around a national bed tax. So not piecemeal, not regional or in different everywhere, but national. And it would need legislative change for that to happen. So we want to work in partnership with government to say, OK, local government can't do it on its own. It's good for local government, but it's good for central government. How can we work together to make this work? In 2019, the Labor government, as it was then, um, directed the regions to come up with destination management plans. Mm-hmm. Within those plans, was there proposed this kind of mechanism, either national or local, for funding these ideas that came through these plans? So those, um, now every region in the country has a destination management plan funded by special money um, allocated during COVID by the government. So it's fantastic. What they don't have is ways of funding it. So they've identified the, the deficits in each of their regions and now they want support to fund it. And that is the partnership we want to work with government. Look, ideally, I think there should be a national policy statement. The government needs to come out with uh, what they hope to achieve out of tourism and um, how many they visitors they'd like to New Zealand and then how we're going to look after them. This is not just about economic return. It's our second biggest uh, economic earner. It actually is about social social cohesion, it's about community. A lot of the infrastructure is good for New Zealanders and let's not forget about half of the visitors in New Zealand currently are domestic visitors. So this isn't just for international, it's for New Zealanders as well. Could some people say though these businesses are the ones that benefit from the from tourists coming in? Why don't they stump up a bit more? But how can they? I mean the ideal way is GST the businesses who benefit the accommodation sector, um, you could argue, so that's why um, we're working hard to get agreement across the sector that a national bed tax is a way that everyone, and that would include Airbnb and motels, and everyone would be part of that. Uh, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're close to agreement on that. The, the sector's never been so united. I think before COVID there was some feedback around the country that maybe the visitor numbers were getting a bit high. But what happened during COVID when there were no visitors, either domestic or international, New Zealanders began to realise the benefit, not just in value, but in terms of infrastructure they have in their towns that support visitors as well as themselves, social cohesion, community, connectedness. And so there is agreement across the country. The the biggest area where there's still some discontent is around the Queenstown area, and that is due to the infrastructure deficit. Yeah, although that is quite difficult because of the topography, isn't it, of the of the city, right. yeah. and the cost of of real estate, and you know, getting tradespeople in to work when they it's hard for them to afford to to live there while they're doing the work. Can I ask you when you think um, this plan is going to be put forward by the TIA and its members about what they'd like to see? What, when can we expect that? So last week we launched our, our 2050 document, so mm-hmm. where we see New Zealand being by 2050. Uh, we have steps between now and 2030 so that we um, are wanting to work with the new government on how we can achieve these. And they're across that infrastructure 
infrastructure deficit right down to research so we've got more data to support what we're asking for. Uh, we want to work with EMB who write the policy and we want to work with a new minister who's interested in tourism not just because it's a good economic earner for New Zealand but because of all those other benefits that um, are obvious when you don't have visitors in a community. And just finally, um, you talked about having the previous Prime Minister, John Key, as Tourism Minister and how how much of a positive thing that was. Can you just explain a little bit about what having someone at that high level sort of lent to the sector? Well, it certainly gave the message to the country that uh, tourism was really important because the Prime Minister kept it. It also meant that when he travelled, he was our number one brand manager overseas. I mean, he was selling not just New Zealand and agriculture and everything else he was selling, he was selling tourism. Uh, as you said earlier, well, as we talked about last week, sorry, um, Prime Minister-elect Christopher Luxon has ruled out carrying that portfolio himself, although he has a good understanding of it from his time as CEO of Air New Zealand. Yeah. But I would hope that in his top cabinet around the table, he's going to give it... Scott, you know, I'd love it to be number two or number three, but as long as it's that top ten, uh, because of its importance to New Zealand... I'd, um, and I think the sector would respect the fact that this government really understands the importance of tourism for New Zealand. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. 